Great, well, good morning. Do please uh, keep that passage open. That would be great. Page 1101. Shall we uh, pray as we look at this? Lord God, we do thank you for uh, your word to us. We thank you for this uh, great encouragement of Acts to see uh, your church rippling out. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through these words and enlarge our vision, we pray, of who you are, uh, what your church is, and our role to play in honouring the name of Jesus. Amen. Great, well, this morning we've got just uh, one point and three areas of kind of application to think about as we look at this passage. I've put them on the slide so we can see uh, where we're going. What is the point uh, this morning? point is that Jesus is on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Because of that, we've got three points of application. There are no no-go zones, no second-class citizens, no power-sharing deals to be made. I think if you think about it, the world is, is full of those sorts of things, isn't it? So from Syria to Iraq, much of the Middle East, many countries are just no-go zones, aren't they? Sri Lanka is no longer a place that you're going to go on holiday, at least for now. Segregation is rife, isn't it? So the USA at the moment, is building a huge border wall with its southern neighbour. The largely poor and black burned to death in a cheaply refurbished tower block in the richest borough in London. The more you pay for your gym membership, the more exclusive you expect it to feel, don't you? Kind of away from the people who aren't as fit or as beautiful as you. We've all got organisations, we've all got places and people that we just don't want to touch. But if we're Christian, because Jesus is God's anointed king, risen from the dead, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, there are no no no-go zones. There are no second-class citizens. There are no power-sharing deals. The account that we're looking at um, this morning immediately follows what we looked at last week, the death of the first Christian martyr, uh, Stephen. And it describes the first major persecution of the church, a persecution encouraged by Saul, who's working here with a zeal not out of place in the Gestapo or in Al-Qaeda. The young church had been doing so well in Jerusalem. You might remember remarkable things uh, had been happening daily the Lord had been adding to their number in the church. Bonds of love would have been formed between them, but now it just seems that the church is being torn to shreds. Stephen, this this much-loved, mourned-for brother, he played the ultimate card of his life. For what purpose? They must have wondered in their grief. There's blood on the pavement, tears are flowing, People are running for their lives, being imprisoned, being scattered, separated from family and loved ones. These are the lines of refugees that you would see on the TV news. That's what's going on here. And yet, and yet we have, don't we, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The word for preached here is a bit like the word gossips. They kind of gossiped the word, couldn't keep it in. It just came out wherever they went. Chapter 8 really is an application of what we were looking at last week in in chapter 7 of the truth 
of chapter 7. Just look back at verse 55 of chapter 7. Verse 55 of chapter 7. Stephen, there he is, at the point of martyrdom. He looks up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What is the point there? The point is that Jesus rules. Jesus rules. Heaven's doors have been thrown wide open. So as Richard said last week, everything that that religious place, the temple, pointed to, the rule of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the forgiveness of God, relationship with God, all of that is now to be found through Jesus. Jesus who reigns on high places, no longer matter. The same way no race or people have God in their back pocket, not even the British. There's no religious class, no place, no race, Jesus rules. So, so proclaiming Jesus, that is what matters. And, and how people respond to Jesus, that is what counts. That is the point being applied here. As the persecuted disciples, they burst out of Jerusalem proclaiming Jesus as Lord. There are no no-go zones, no second-class citizens, no power-sharing deals to be cut. There's no better illustration, is there, of a spiritual no-go zone than Samaria, this area that features at the centre of this passage. No accident that Luke puts it front and centre. Because Samaria to Jerusalem is what Gaza is today to a Jew. Or, or what nationalist Derry in Northern Ireland would have been to the British Army. Or what the Brexit party is to a Remainer. Or, if you're into Game of Thrones, final episode tonight, what north of the wall is uh, to a member of the Seven Kingdoms. You kind of get the point. 700 years previously, Samaria had been part of a united kingdom under David and Solomon. In those glory days, there was this great united Israel with 12 tribes ruling the known world. All the blessings flowed to Jerusalem off the back of that. But for the Jews, the Samaritans, they were the ones who'd brought an end to that party because they'd rebelled, they'd broken away. A northern state was formed. The city of Samaria was founded. A rival temple, a rival religious system was set up in direct opposition to Jerusalem. They hated each other's guts, the Jews and Samaritans. You know, and to make matters worse... When Samaria was later invaded uh, by external people, they repopulated the place from people from every nation and religion. So you had this result of a kind of hodgepodge of religious practice, a big cultural melting pot, a sort of smorgasbord of of dodgy spiritual practices. And this colourful magician like Simon the Sorcerer character is is emblematic uh, of what Samaria was like. So the Samaritans, they're richly impure, they're racially mixed, and they're religiously unclean. What does that mean? If you're a first century Jew, you do not go near the place. Yet that is exactly where they go, isn't it? Verse 4. 
Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks and evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and crippled were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And then verse 12. But, they believed, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. What, what is the big point at the heart of this account? It is that centuries of division are being reversed. The Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled that one day, one day under the rule of God's true king, Every knee will bow. Israel will be reunited and restored. Even the Samaritans, even them, they'll come under the rule of God's appointed king, promised king. So so what the temple have failed to achieve, what the Jews of the religious race had failed to achieve, that is now being achieved through Jesus, through people preaching the good news, proclaiming, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, not, note, the religious leaders or the elite or trained people, just ordinary people fleeing for their lives out of Jerusalem. There's no hitch, is there, here in, in God's, God's plan? What do you got? You've got persecution that leads to scattering, that leads to evangelism. So persecution is kind of the firelighter or the catalyst that starts this chain reaction. I bet if you had said to the church, you know, what's your plan for evangelism to go out? They would say, it's this, then we'll go here, then we'll do this. None of that comes to pass. Would they have expected this persecution to be the catalyst? Nothing, no obstacle can prevent the advance of the church. Persecution is, is advancing the church in this passage. No areas where Jesus is not Lord. And how the Samaritans respond with with their belief and their joy, that shows that Jesus is Lord. This is happening. He is God's king. He is ruling. So that that big ripple out program that we saw in Acts 1, the promise of Jesus, they will be his witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, Samaria can be ticked off the list. There are no no no-go zones. I wonder, do you really believe that? Do you believe that? What are the no-go zones in in your mind? I must confess that occasionally I look around at work, and I I do think, you know, what what has Jesus got to do with all of this. You know, people are busy. They've got their own lives. Many have got their own very clear ideas about life. It all sometimes just seems a bit detached. Can Jesus Christ really impact here? Isn't this just, just a no-go zone? I read a book recently by somebody called Melvin Tinker called um, The Hideous Strength. Quite an interesting book. I wouldn't necessarily be with him on every page, but he writes about how our culture does pursue a very aggressive form of reshaping of our thinking, something that grips 
our thinking that takes Christ and pushes him to the very outside and says, he's not for here, he's not for here, he's not for here, he's for you in your private living room. Stick with him there, don't come near him with us. And how we're just tempted to fall for that. Even the church kind of gets sucked into that hook, line, and sinker. There are no no no-go zones because Jesus rules. I don't know what no-go zones are in, in your mind. Is it members of your family who just seem so set in their thinking? That neighbor that you've got of a different religion, the friend you just don't want to upset. So things are going fine with them. They don't, do they really need to hear about Jesus? The Students' Union, the public square where Christians are ridiculed and dismissed like flat earthers. Any other group or individual who just seems unapproachable. No, Jesus rules. There there are no no no-go zones. It's not, is it, that when we proclaim, when we speak about Jesus, proclaim the gospel, that people or powers just surrender. That doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen here here in Acts. Jerusalem is is still there in the background, being, being violently persecuted, but as we proclaim the gospel, tell people about Jesus. Jesus' rule is established over every apparent no-go zone, even Samaria. No no no-go zones. Jesus is Lord. That is why, isn't it? It's why Christians have always been willing, you know, down the ages, seemingly when any rational thinking would say, don't do this, to go out to the most dangerous of places, to give of themselves in the most extreme of ways, even in the face of extraordinary persecution. What else explains it? It's why in the end, isn't it, we're sitting here today. Opposition does hurt. I think the sneers are difficult. We can downplay the persecution that we do face, but most of us don't face really serious persecution. This should give us confidence to take out the gospel with costs, whatever the boundary that seems to be in place. No no-go zones. Second, I think there are no, no second-class citizens. I think the second point we can take from this, verses, verses 14 to 7, we've got, haven't we, two apostles come down from Jerusalem and they pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans then receive the promised Holy Spirit and God himself comes to dwell in them. So we've got, haven't we, this visit by Peter and John to authenticate, if you like, the breaking advance of the gospel into this new territory to demonstrate there aren't any people who are second class here. Just look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans received God himself to come and live within them. That is amazing. After 700 years of dodgy practices... He comes to live within them in the same way as the church in Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem. After I um, first graduated from university, I spent a while working for 
a Member of Parliament in Westminster as a researcher. And I had a path to get in and around uh, the parliamentary estate where I, where I worked, which was great, good fun. But everyone in Westminster who is not an MP is treated as something of a second-class citizen. So you go to the canteen for lunch, and MPs had the right to go straight to the front of the queue and get served first, which some loved doing, I might add. There were certain lifts in the building that only MPs could use. If you wanted to go down to the nice terrace bar by the Thames, you could only do that if you were with an MP. So as a staffer, I wasn't, if you like, a full member. I didn't have full access. I was, if you like, a second-class citizen. Not the case here, is it, with the Samaritans? They've got full membership. As they accepted the word of God, turned to Jesus, repentance and faith, they receive the Holy Spirit. You can't get, can you, closer to God than that. Him living within you by his spirit, that is full membership. There is, isn't there, a bit of a timing issue here that I think we probably need to think about. You may have noticed it in terms of the sequence of events. So the Samaritans, you notice, they hear the gospel, believe, and are baptized. But they receive the Holy Spirit later, don't they? At a later stage. So some people, I think, understandably, have concluded, well, this, this shows that it's normal, isn't it, to have a two-stage initiation into the Christian faith. So that's what many Roman Catholic, well, Roman Catholics believe. Baptism, stage one. Confirmation at the hands of a bishop, stage two. Holy Spirit dispensed. Or Pentecostal Christians, they, they would say uh, a similar thing. Stage one, initial belief, initial regeneration, followed by stage two, a sort of experience of baptism in the spirit. Our boiler is broken at the moment. Our house is freezing. So to take a very well-used illustration, like a household boiler, some people have a kind of flickering flame, while some people have got the boiler roaring away. Is that is what, is that is what being taught here? Well, I think there's no doubt, is there, that there is very clearly a two-stage process here. Belief in baptism first, Holy Spirit second. Yeah, I think it's also fair to say that what does happen here does seem to be something of an anomaly when you take the full sweep of Scripture. There's nothing else in Scripture quite like what goes on here. If you look at the rest of Acts, it's the normal occurrence at the point of belief for the Holy Spirit to come, enable belief as a person repents, to make a person alive at that moment. So the person who trusts Jesus, every person who trusts Jesus, has all of the Holy Spirit, not two separate classes. I think a number of places you can look at that, so Acts 2 verse 38, you know, uh, Peter teaches, repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they do. Or Romans 8, Paul writes, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit doesn't belong to Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to look it up later, verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So if it's not 
typical or normal? What, what, you know, what is going on here? I think it would seem to be that uniqueness would seem to be the heart of the point here. It is all about the fact it is a unique event. It seems likely that something really unusual is happening at this pivotal moment in the church. Peter and John have come down, haven't they, from Jerusalem to authenticate this groundbreaking advance of the gospel. And these Samaritans, enemies for 700 years, it's to show they really are full members of God's kingdom. So in other words, you've got something of a holding back, deliberate holding back of the spirit on this unique occasion so there can be a clear demonstration that they are fully involved. They're full members. They've got all that the blessings that flow from that are. John Stott puts it like this, finally. He says, the apostles did not normally cast themselves in the role of inspectors of evangelism, but an unprecedented situation demanded quite exceptional methods. Well, if you want to discuss it further afterwards, do go and find Richard. No, I'm only, <laughs> I'm, I'm only joking. I'm really happy to have a chat about it afterwards if you'd like to. But I think, I think what is ironic uh, about people that do take a two-stage line from this is if you think about it, doesn't that actually achieve the reverse of the big point of this passage? Because the big point... because Well, no, it would be saying that there is one group over here that has some of the Holy Spirit and one group over here that's properly firing on all cylinders, when actually the big point of this passage is that these Samaritans have full and complete inclusion, like the church in Jerusalem and the rest of the apostles. They're no different. And if you put your trust in Jesus, so do you. You're fully in with all of the Holy Spirit. I think surely this is encouraging isn't it isn't this encouraging I mean perhaps you think or we do think but you know I'm from I'm just from an unlikely background I'm from the wrong country I'm just not cut from the right kind of cloth you haven't seen you know the full slate of my history a bit like the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus in John's gospel he's had five husbands current bloke is not a husband you're in says Jesus. Or sometimes as Christians, we can look, can't we, at another Christian, and we can longingly think, wow, they must have a different fuel to me. (laughs) They're just powered by something different. Yes, I'm a Christian, but I just don't have all that I need to do what God has called me to do. That is not true. Turn to Jesus, and you're in as much as anyone else who is in. And you will receive the full blessing of God's Spirit. No no-go-zones, no second-class citizens. Just very briefly, for a couple of minutes as we finish, no power-sharing deal. What about Simon the Sorcerer? We've only touched on him um, briefly. Simon is, it's fair to say, something of a showman, isn't he? You can picture the guy straight out of Essex, Self-appointed, self-made, self-promoting, self-confident. My dad's from Essex, so I'm not being rude. 
that this guy loves attention, he achieves power and prominence. He would be winning The Apprentice. That's the sort of character he is. All the people, high and low, they're amazed by his powers. Isn't the world, isn't the church, we could say, full of people like Simon? At first glance, it seems that he too believes in Jesus, verse 13, but the mask slips, verse 18. He sees how God uses the apostles in great power, and he thinks, you know what, I want a bit of that. And doubtless loaded from his successful career, he tries to buy the trade secret for himself and from his own ends. He's probably got a franchise deal in mind here. Peter's response is searing, isn't it? Verse 20. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You've no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. There's no deal, is there, to be brokered with God. You can't cut a deal on your own terms, whoever you are. However important you think you are, however smart you think you may be, however big your bank account, however magnetic your charm is, you can't broker a deal with God. Yes, the good news of Jesus is for indiscriminate distribution. Like the NHS, Jesus is free at the point of need. But you don't get Jesus on your own terms to manipulate him as you want to do. Don't think you can cut a deal with God now or on the final day. Whoever we are, this is about turning around, isn't it? It's about repentance. It's about full surrender. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. No no no-go zones. No second-class citizens. No power-sharing deal to be cut. Shall we pray? Look, we do thank you for this, um, this account uh, of the, the early church in Acts and uh, all that it shows us about your plan and your purposes being worked out exactly in the way uh, that you said that they would. Lord God, we pray that we might uh, take this deep into our hearts to be uh, encouraged to know that Jesus is on the throne. Jesus does rule. doesn't always feel like that. doesn't always seem like that. But that is the truth. And Lord, we pray that we would uh, re-examine our lives in light of that and be people that live more in line with that agenda to be able to be willing to be courageous to speak of Jesus through boundaries to different people, that people would come to know him and your kingdom would be extended, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.